Hello and welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 18, Succession. as we know from the documents that survive, it was smooth sailing for Cosimo after the General Assembly of 1458. The old list of enfranchised citizens that had been put together under the Albizzi were burned. Through Cosimo's brand new council, the Cento, not only were hundreds of citizens disenfranchised, but new lists of citizens were drawn up to be placed in the electoral bags. And although the Republic operated the same way it had since the ordinances of justice were enacted, few of any important decisions were made without Cosimo's input. In his memoirs, Pope Pius II observed that after the General Assembly, Cosimo was refused nothing. He was regarded as the arbiter of war and peace, the regulator of law, not so much a citizen as the master of his city. Political councils were held at his house. The magistrates he nominated were elected. He was king in all but name and state. Still, the new regime had to tighten the screws here and there just to be safe. The closest thing Florence had to a police force, the Auto di Guardia, was voted the power to investigate and try the crime of conspiracy which came to mean conspiring against or just verbally threatening the Medici family. Theoretically, the citizens of Florence still had the right to express their opinions, but opinions that had the whiff of treason were risky. One of the critics of the Medici regime that went a step too far was Girolamo Machiavelli, the Machiavelli's father's cousin. Girolamo was exiled from Florence, and presumably because he tried to incite rebellion among the towns under Florence's control, he was arrested, brought back to the city, and executed. But Cosimo always kept himself a few degrees away from any potentially unpopular decisions, with his chief lieutenants like Luca Pitti gladly playing the role of the bad guy whenever necessary. Cosimo appreciated that appearances counted for everything. While Medici did everything they could to rig the electoral lots and silence their most dangerous critics, they also played up the language of liberty. The biggest of these gestures was a small yet profound name change. Once the members of the Signora were called the Priors of the Guilds, now they would henceforth be called the Priors of Liberty. This was a pretty bold, if very hollow, declaration that even with Cosimo pulling all the levers behind the curtain, the citizens of Florence never enjoyed as much liberty as they did now. It was also a resoundingly clear message that the guilds, once the heart and soul of Florence's republic, were now little more than a relic. Yet even at the height of his political power, Cosimo's personal life reached its lowest point. 
his life became proof that no matter how much influence and wealth a person gets, they still experience the same hardships most of us do when we reach old age. Plagued by ill health, not long after his coup, he retired from all political offices, even though he still kept exercising actual power from the comfort of his palatial home. The cause of his constant painful illness was gout, more rare today than it used to be. Gout is a form of inflammatory arthritis that inflicts the foot, usually the big toe, with pain and swelling. In severe cases, gout can even help cause kidney failure. Gout tormented not only Cosimo, but both his sons as well. According to one visitor to the Palazzo Medici, he found Cosimo, quote, sitting in his room with his two sons, all three afflicted with gout. He only a little, and Piero, his elder son, was not suffering at the time, but they were all seated as if they were unable to move from that position, nor could they ride and had to be carried everywhere. Even when he just had to move around his own home, Cosimo had to be carried in a sedan chair by servants. Whenever the servants jostled the chair against the doorpost, it usually hurt Cosimo badly. One time when it seemed like the servants were about to accidentally hit the chair against the doorframe again, he cried out instinctively. The servants told him nothing happened. Cosimo joked with his usual wry sense of humor. If anything had happened, no amount of crying would have made any difference. Still, though, on April 29, 1459, he made one more grand appearance as the de facto Lord of Florence. When Pius II visited the city, Cosimo welcomed the Pope with full-on Medici hospitality. There was a joust at the Church of Santa Croce in front of an audience that paid tickets for the events. It was followed by a ball. In a closed-off area set up at the Piazza della Signora, they brought in bulls, buffaloes, horses, and wild boars. Twelve lions were also unleashed into the area to hunt the prey, because this was not an era known for animal rights. But the lions were apparently so tame, they instead took one look at the menagerie of other animals and cowered. Still, the audience was delighted instead of disappointed when a man put himself in a giant wooden hamster ball and chased after the animals. I was going to make a joke about how easily people were entertained back then, but honestly, I'd probably enjoy seeing a guy roll around in a giant ball chasing after various animals, too. On May 1st, the last day of the festivities... Cosimo hosted a festival on the Via Larga, outside his palace. A group of young men put on a choreographed horse-riding show, standing on their stirrups. The grand finale was a parade led by Cosimo's grandson, Lorenzo, who was at the time 10 years old. Once the parade reached the Pope and his entourage, Lorenzo cordially invited them to dinner at the Palazzo Medici. One of the VIPs in attendance, Francesco Sforza's son and the heir to the Duchy of Milan, Galeazzo Maria Sforza, told his father it was, quote, the most beautiful house I have ever seen. Piero's wife, Lucrezia, sang and played instruments while their daughter, Bianca, played the organ and sang French chansons. 
secular songs with lyrics. When it was time to bid the Pope farewell, Cosimo tried to kneel and kiss his foot, but he was too crippled with gout to fully get on his knees. According to Pius II himself, Cosimo laughed and said, Two Florentines named Papa and Lupo, returning from the country, met in the piazza and offered each other their hands and a kiss. But they were both very fat, and there was such corporosity, if I may use that word, on both sides that they could only touch their stomachs. Gout now denies me what corpulence refused him. This grand celebration for the Pope would prove to be Cosimo's own bittersweet farewell to Florence. A few years later, Cosimo was dealt a fatal psychological blow that also completely upended his plans for the family's future. His younger son, Giovanni, was the one Cosimo had been entrusted with more and more responsibility over Florence's domestic politics, since he shared his father's charisma and human touch. However, Giovanni's health had long been deteriorating, thanks in no small part, the sources suggest, to a love of rich, fatty food. In any case, even with his bad health and bad habits, no one predicted that Giovanni would so suddenly die, either from a heart attack or kidney failure, on September 23, 1463, at only the age of 42. Possibly by then, his only brother, Piero, was in as bad shape from gout as his brother was, if not worse. There's no indication that Cosimo preferred Giovanni over Piero just because of personal like or dislike. However, Cosimo did clearly feel that Piero, despite the fact that he was the future head of the family, was better qualified to manage the bank than lead Florence. Cosimo was so desperate, in fact, that he entrusted certain important political responsibilities to his grandson, Piero's eldest son, Lorenzo, even though Lorenzo was only 15 years old. No doubt Cosimo correctly perceived some promise in his grandson, despite how young he was. But it would have been extremely unseemly, if not unthinkable, that Lorenzo be given the spot of head of the Medici family while his father was still alive no matter how sick Piero was or how bad he was at politicking. So instead, Cosimo urged Piero to put his trust in one of his lieutenants, Diotti Salvi Neroni, a successful and beloved Florentine statesman who had been one of Cosimo's most valuable allies since the time of his exile. In fact, at least according to Machiavelli, Cosimo, quote, recommended Piero to be wholly guided by Neroni both with regard to the government of the city and the management of his fortune. This would prove to be a rare and potentially deadly error in judgment by Cosimo. But let's put a pin in Neroni for now. The death of his beloved son Giovanni, coming so soon after the death of Giovanni's own young son Casimino, and the growing sickness of Piero, cast a shadow over Cosimo's moods. He apparently retained his dry sense of humor, but his mind was constantly fixed on death and the futility of human life. At one point, he looked at the Palazzo Medici and remarked, quote, Too great a house for so small a family. Also, he was known to say that his accomplishments in life had, in the end, amounted to nothing, 
in response to a letter from Pope Pius II consoling him for the death of Giovanni and suggesting that he try to keep his sorrow in check with old-fashioned reason. Cosimo wrote, I've always sought it expedient and praiseworthy to control, for I could not quench my grief, but now, most beloved father, to act contrary to your advice would seem to me positively sinful. I therefore strive to the best of my power, and so far as my weak spirit will permit, to bear this great calamity with calmness. To me, it appeared a calamity, but God alone knows what is truly a misfortune. And we, as you write so wisely and devoutly, are ignorant of it. Yet I never thought it was not well with my son Giovanni, for I remembered that he had gone forth, not from life, but into life from death. For this which we call life is death, and the true life is that which is everlasting. Yet we know not for what to pray. I trust that God, in the abundance of his mercy, will pity us that are left behind. For the Lord is gentle and full of mercy. But for my own life, I count it happy because the Supreme Pontiff, the Vicar of Christ, has been thoughtful on its account. I will indeed take care of it, but not for the reasons which you and your more than human kindness have put forward. For what is my power worth now? What worth has it ever had? Modern historians guess that during this time Cosimo was slowly dying from kidney or liver disease, brought on or made worse by gout. Fully aware of his impending death, Cosimo turned to the platonic philosophy he had tried to cultivate. I should probably clarify here that there is no evidence that Cosimo was any less conventionally devout than the people of his time. Still, though, Cosimo sought comfort not only in Christianity, but in Plato's meditations on life and what comes next. In one letter, Cosimo wrote to his translator, Marsilio Facino, Yesterday, I came to the Villa of Careggi, not to cultivate my fields, but my soul. Come to us, Marsilio, as soon as possible. Bring with you our Plato's book. This, I suppose, you have already translated from the Greek language into Latin, as you promised. I desire nothing so much as to know the best road to happiness. Cosimo would also ask Marsilio to translate a treatise on death by the Greek philosopher Xenocrates, a book scholars today call Axiakos. The actual identity of the author of Axiakos may not have been Xenocrates, and it's still debated, but the important thing is that Axiakis is a dialogue about Socrates coming to talk with a man on his deathbed. The man seeks from Socrates any reassurance that would help him cope with his own overwhelming fear of death. By the summer of 1464, Cosimo decided to stay indefinitely at the Medici's country villa at Caregi. We don't know for sure, but it seems like he had decided to die there. While they were making preparations for the move, Cosimo's wife, Contesina, asked him why he was being quiet all of a sudden. 
He remarked he was busy thinking about the relocation and added, I have to move on from this life to another. Don't you think that I have much to think about? After visiting his father at Kureji, Piero wrote sadly to his own sons, Lorenzo and Giuliano, quote, It appears to me that he is gradually sinking, and he thinks so himself. In his last days, confined to bed, Cosimo received the usual death rites and requested a simple tomb and funeral. Then he passed away on August 1st, 1464, and was buried with a funeral that was not even as extravagant as the funerals of members of Florence's great families. Still, the Signora voted that his gravestone should carry the motto Pater Patria, an old Roman honorific meaning Father of the Nation. With Cosimo dead, Piero stepped into his father's murky role as leader of Florence. At first, despite the potential dangers, the transition was seamless. Piero was even recognized by other heads of states. He received letters of condolence from no one less than Pope Pius II and King Louis XI of France, who even honored the Medici family by granting them the right to use the emblem of the lily of France in their banners where it remains to this day. So, for the time being, there was no real challenge to Piero stepping into his father's shoes. But in cold political terms, Cosimo's death was potentially a massive problem for the future of the Medici family. Cosimo's role as the de facto leader of the Republic was something not defined in the Florentine constitution. There wasn't even a word for what Cosimo was. There had been presidents, of course. Florentine patriarchs had always passed on their clients and their roles in political factions to their sons. Like what Meso Albizzi had done for his son, Ronaldo. But there wasn't a precedent for how much power Cosimo had, much less letting all that power pass on to his son without the title of Signore or some noble title. It was one thing to be a king, or more specifically, a member of the Capetian dynasty that had ruled France. The Capetians had been the kings of France since 987, so they had had that role for practically forever. The sacred crown of France, as well as longevity, gave them an aura of legitimacy that protected them so well that they could probably afford to churn out not just a mediocre king, but maybe even a few outright bad ones in succession. However, the Medici had neither an ancient and venerated title or the magic of political legitimacy. The task of keeping the Medici family in power was now entirely in the hands of Piero de' Medici, who just so happened to be a sickly 46-year-old man everyone thought could die at any time. But at least he was fortunate enough to still have his father's lieutenants, who were all established prominent politicians from powerful, elite Florentine families. So what could go wrong? 